Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. Excellent. I want you to think of this table here as a representation of your life, okay? And the boxes that are on the table, as you could probably guess, represent some of the things that we put on the table of our life. Okay. Now, for some, for some people, uh, like my beautiful wife, these boxes are very well ordered, like a, like a really clean game of Tetris. Everything has a place, and there's a place for everything. Like others, to my wife's frustration, like me, the boxes are just scattered over the table. Okay. But just just think of this, and think about how you would picture what your life would look like if it was if if each box represented one aspect of your life. We've got things like work and family, sleep. Do you wish it was that big? I do. Um, you've got little things like this stand subscription, uh, Disney Plus. You've got church over here, the garden. Uh, these are some of the things that I thought of, study, football, AFL, of course, uh, exercise, all those sorts of things, right? And there's some boxes back here that are, that are hidden behind that, that represent maybe some other things that, that you might think of. What was, really, uh, what was really interesting and quite confronting for many of us is that I think around 2020, uh, with the events of the world, this kind of happened. The pandemic, right? Everything, everything fell on the floor. Well, let, let's, let's be a bit careful here because probably, uh, probably work didn't fall, although for some, work changed quite dramatically. But working from home became a thing um, and still is for many of us. Uh, family, hopefully that didn't fall off the table. Um, that, but we'll stick that back on. Uh, what else have we got here that maybe would have stayed on Ch- church? Well, we did it online. Maybe it became a bit smaller. Maybe during the worship, like me, you'd go off and make yourself a coffee or tea and then come back for the good stuff. Um, that's just a joke. Uh, study, m- m- maybe study, maybe study stayed there in some form. But you get the idea, right? And then there's all this other stuff on the floor that you kind of go, well, what am I going to put back on? And I, th- I think for a lot of us, we, we, didn't, we didn't pause and ask that question. We just couldn't wait for the day when everything went back to normal. Whatever the table looked like before 2020, we couldn't wait to get it back to looking the same again as soon as possible. And I know for some, and it, it's not making the headlines anymore, but for some, COVID and the pandemic still affect you. There's still some things that you can't put back on the table yet. But maybe for a lot of us, we've just tried to get things back as normal as possible. But here's a reality. Here's, here's a big reality. Here's, here's a big wake-up call for all of us, you are the one who is most in control of what goes on the table. You know, there's some things there that you don't want to come off. There's some things there that you'd like to stay there that sort of, okay, well, I've got to have those things in place. I've got to work. I've got my family. Maybe put that the other way around. I've got, there's some things I've got to do. But still, you're in control of that. You decide what goes on your table. You decide what's on there. Look, look at some of these things that are here. Like you, you, can, you can have a Netflix account or you cannot. I do, so I'm going to put that up there. Well, we'll let, while we're thinking of Netflix, who's, who's paying for a subscription, TV subscription that they never watch? Who, come on, this is a place of grace. Place of grace. There's more, more hands to go up. Okay, so let, let's stack those together. Um, what's this one? Football, yeah, that, that was a tragedy when the AFL season got cancelled. 
I'm glad that went back on the table. The garden, the garden probably never came off. I think probably the garden box got bigger for a lot of us. Um, what, have I, what else have I got here? Sleep, oh, sleep. <laughs> this one was probably the whole table for some of us um, through the pandemic, um, particularly if we got COVID. Excellent. Okay, what else? What else? Oh, exercise, exercise. Yeah, I, I actually have started exercising more than ever, probably as a result of COVID, but I'm thankful for that. But what about these, these ones? I've got to find the ones that I put over here. Oh, this one. And maybe, where's the other one? This one. These are the things in your life that are on your table that you don't want anyone to know about. These are the things that maybe go back here. These are the addictions and the habits that aren't good. So you just, they're on your table, but you don't want anyone to see them. You're in control of your table. You're in control of what goes on there. And as you can see, by the way, I've put the boxes on. It's not, that's not a clean picture of Tetris, is it? That's, uh, that's going to be a very short game of Tetris. When, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he doesn't just want us to change what we believe. He doesn't even just want us to change what we value, although what we value will impact what's on the table. Jesus wants it all. Jesus invites us all into this life with him. He invites us and, and he, he wants to speak to every single box that is on the table of our life. He's not, only interest, he's not just interested in this one. It's not like, okay, as long as you're there on Sunday morning, I guess that'll do. You come to the prayer meeting on Monday night, awesome. You come, you're a youth leader on Friday, that's, that's great. Your box, is, your box is good, so me and Jesus are good because at least this is on the table. Hey, Sam, you're lucky this is even on the table. Well, thank you very much. Jesus isn't just interested in that. Jesus wants the whole table. He's interested in every box, even these ones. Jesus invites us in to life. Jesus doesn't just give us a ticket to eternity once this is all over. Once this is all gone, once our life has been lived and what we value, what, what we did, all these sorts of things. And then finally, we go to heaven to live forever with him. That's not why Jesus, the only reason why Jesus died. He does invite us to that. But that life is meant to start now. Now. And he is concerned for every box. Listen to these words I read during communion. This is the message translation of Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me, says Jesus. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Jesus isn't forcing anything onto our table. They're unforced rhythms of grace. They're invitations to us. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Don't you see every word of that invitation from Jesus speaks to the now. It doesn't just speak to the then. The rest he's talking about is not rest then when I die. The rest he's talking about involves walking with him and working with him and learning from him about the way he lived our lives. I love what Dallas Willard says when he writes of this vision of life, this vision that Jesus puts before us. 
Dallas Willard writes this, the vision which underlines spiritual transformation is a vision of life now and forever, now and forever in God's will and presence. What we are aiming for in this vision is to live fully in the kingdom of God as fully as possible here and now, not just hereafter. This vision of life in God's kingdom makes it possible for us to intend to live it. We can do it. We can. We can. We can do it, but we do it with intent. We do it with purpose because we are in control of what goes on our table. We can do it. Grace is amazing, as we just sung, in its freeness. But to grow in grace, to grow in and to walk alongside Jesus, it takes intent. To fully live the abundant life that Jesus offers means to live in these unforced rhythms of grace. Another way to think of your life is not with a table, but with a piece of music. And there is a rhythm to that. And you get to decide what instruments play when and what instruments play together. That's the rhythm of life. The person, again, who is most in control of that rhythm of your life is you. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your boss. It's not your pastor. It's you. You are in the most control of the rhythms of your life. Chris Webb talks about these rhythms like this. The way we structure our days not only reveals our character and priorities, it can also help us to shape them. We may be wired to live by rhythms, but we can intentionally set the beat. We can structure our daily living as a loving response to the grace of God in Christ. Over the next six weeks in this new series we're started today, based off this Matthew 11 passage from, from the message, Rhythms of Grace, that's what this series is called, Rhythms of Grace. Over the next six weeks, we're going to look at six different ways that we can flow in this rhythm of grace. Now, the way that we've referred to these things in the past has been probably not a very nice and inviting word. We've, we've talked about spiritual disciplines, spiritual disciplines. Just, just because it's 2022 and we don't like that word anymore, uh, particularly me who likes a scattered uh, table, we're going to talk about spiritual practices. Six spiritual practices, there's more than six, but six spiritual practice, practices that I hope will be an encouragement to you to maybe put on the table, however big it might start with, like it might start like this, a little, little thing that you just put on the table that might be like five minutes a day as a spiritual practice, but maybe over time will grow into something a bit bigger like this as you invest more and more in it and God meets you in it in those unforced rhythms of grace. So that's where we're going with this series. Let, let's replace that word spiritual discipline now with spiritual practices. Let me, there's, four, there's four things that a spiritual practice can do for you in your life. Now, we don't want to get legalistic about this. We don't, want to, we don't want to look at spiritual practices as like a formula that if we do them, God must respond. Now, let's not, that's not the gospel. That, that's religion. That, that religion says if you take these steps toward God, he will bless you. No, God has already blessed us in Jesus this doesn't help, this doesn't ensure that you will be saved. You are saved. But in his great love for you, let's be wooed to draw closer, to have that intent. Here's, here's four things a spiritual practice can do. The, the first thing is it can create an awareness of God. We got that slide? It creates awareness of God's presence. And don't we need more of that? Don't we need more of an awareness of God's presence in our life, what he's doing, what he's saying, what he's doing in the people around us? 
A spiritual practice helps, allows us to hear from God. And then because we're hearing from a spiritual practice, invites us to respond to God. What is God saying? What are we gonna do about it? We can respond. And then ultimately, a spiritual practice shapes us in the way of Jesus. And I love the way, he, the way it's translated or transcribed in the message translation. That he's inviting us to, to work with him and walk alongside him and be shaped more and more to the way that he lived and lives. And so that's what this series is about over the next six weeks. When you think about uh, your table and your rhythm, the reality is you already have rhythm in your life. Even if you're like me, uh, compared to my wife, and life feels a bit scattered, a bit chaotic, and sometimes we can defend that by going, that's just my personality, all that sort of thing. But the reality is, when, even when you get beneath what appears to be chaotic, we all of us live by rhythms. All of us have some kind of rule of life, some kind of pattern, some kind of way of doing things. And some of those things are really good. Some of those things are neither good or bad. And some of them are really bad. But we all have a rule of life. Again, Chris Webb says, there is a pattern to our activities. We build structure into our days. We create family traditions and rituals. Our churches use liturgies. Even though we often rejoice in spontaneity and flexibility, the truth is we like routines. We prefer order to chaos. We live by rhythms. There's a lady by the name of Adele Alberg Calhoun who challenges us to have some more gospel-inspired, to set some gospel-inspired rhythms into our rhythm and into our rule of life. She writes this, and I'm bombarding you with quotes. If you want to get your phone out and take photos on these, these are really good quotes. A rule of life offers unique and regular rhythms that free and open each person to the will and presence of Christ. The spiritual practices of a rule provide a way to partner with the Holy Spirit for personal transformation. And again, coming back to the table, maybe taking some of these things and either making them smaller boxes and adding in new ones or completely removing some and replacing them with something healthy. Paul's heart for the followers of Jesus in Corinth, he says, all I want for you is to be able to develop a way of life in which you can spend plenty of time together with the master without a lot of distractions. That's Paul's heart for the Christians, the church at Corinth, and that, I believe, is Jesus' heart for Gateway Redlands over the next six weeks and into the future. And I know, let, me, let me say this as well. I know that for some of you, you already have really good spiritual practices in place. And can I encourage you to keep them going? Can I encourage you over the next six weeks in your life groups and as you talk with others to talk about them, talk about what works for you, talk about what hasn't worked for you. But together, even if there was just one thing we could start to do in our lives over the next six weeks to bring in a new spiritual practice, that would be good for us. So the first spiritual, that's the intro to the series, right? How, how much time we got? Yeah, we're good. The first spiritual practice that we're talking about today is simplicity. Simplicity. Living a simple life. Now that word probably isn't uh, conjuring up a whole lot of positive images for you, particularly when I say living the simple life. I don't mean to put that in front of family, by the way. I just want it to be front and centre uh, as we think about these practices over the next six weeks. Simplicity. Now, to understand what we mean by simplicity, the first thing we need to understand and, and, and be aware of is the cultural current in which we swim. Let me read, uh, sorry, no, before I read that quote, 
if you look around, and, and some of you will know this so, so well, collectively, as a, as a Western community, people who live in the West, in 2022, we live in a time when we've never had more stuff, but at the same time have never been more unhappy. We've never had more stuff, and yet we've never been more depressed, more generally unhappy with life, with our lot in life, all that sort of thing. So what's going on? Now, I think consumption and consumerism, time and time and time again, has let us down. It's failed us. We think that when we get that thing, when we make that purchase, as we get more stuff, we'll have more happiness. And I know the kick of ordering something on Amazon and then having the notification that it's arriving today and waiting for the sound of the delivery guy dropping it at my front door. That's, that's a rush. Who's with me? Any other confessions here? There's a rush in that. But it's like, there's nothing wrong with buying stuff, by the way, particularly the stuff you need. And most of the stuff, well, of course, I, I needed a new pair of binoculars. But anyway, you, we, we, do, we often do that, believing this lie that once we get that, then we'll be happy. Then we'll be satisfied. And apart from that initial kick, I don't know about you who put your hands up and for all those who didn't, who should have, you get that initial kick, but then it's like, there is, it's not a deep despair, but it's kind of like, oh, is that it? I, I thought there'd be, I thought I'd be more happy now having that. Time and time again, consumerism and consumption let us down. The stuff lets us down. The stuff that promises to make us happier does not make us happier. But time and time again, we keep going back to that well, expecting things to change. What does Einstein say? Well, he says we're all insane because we're doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. This, this, this lie that we fall for, actually, here's, here's, here's the big reality. That lie that I think a lot of us, if not all of us, fall for is what drives our economy. Listen to this. This, this is a quote uh, from a retail analyst and economist. His name is Victor Lebo. That's a cool name. It might be Lebow, I'm not sure, but Lebo. He, he, was in the, he lived in the 1950s as well as a few other decades. But in the post-World War II Western world, he, he wrote this. Listen, listen to this and let this be a re reality punch in the face. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced and discarded at an ever increasing pace. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore here it is, constantly more expensive consumption. This is a lie that we are falling for, that consumption will make us happy. And that is what's behind our Western economy. There's two strategies. I remember hearing about this and going, oh man, this, in, in post-World War America, and therefore, at the time, most of the Western world, if not all of it, how are we going to rebuild? They came up with two things, planned obsolescence and perceived obsolescence. And again, these are things that drive the economy. Planned obsolescence. You know, there's a reason why... I might put my phone down there. There's a reason why after about three or four years, your iPhone starts to slow down. Now, don't, don't start picking on iPhones. Whatever smartphone you've got, that's, that's not because that's the lifespan of a phone. That's planned 
by the manufacturer. And here's, here's their challenge. We've got to make a product. So Apple go, we've got to make a product that lasts long enough that people are satisfied, but not so long that they won't come back and buy a new one. You get that? That's, that's what's going on with most manufacturers of products. And, and don't just think about phones, think about shoes, think about jeans, think about shirts, think about everything that you own. Behind that is, we've got, you, know how, you know how back industrial age, things, things lasted forever? That's gone because that doesn't drive the economy. If it lasts forever, you'll never have to come back and buy a new one. But we're all, we're all complicit in this. Planned obsolescence. Perceived obsolescence gave birth to fashion and marketing and advertising. And you know, like, even, though, even though these shoes that I own are designed to do exactly what I bought them for ultimately, there will come a time, and my kids would say it's long gone, that these shoes are not fashionable anymore. So what do I do? Go and buy new ones. That's, again, is something there. Planned obsolescence, perceived obsolescence, perceived obsolescence. This shirt is no longer cool. This has to go into my cupboard and never be worn again because it's not cool and it's not fashionable anymore and I need to, I need to roll with what the market is telling me. And this is what drives the economy. This is, this is the plan of the, of the culture, the society we live in, putting out this myth and this lie that more stuff will make us happier. Simplicity. Simplicity is a strong, but at times difficult, attempt to swim against the current. Embracing simplicity. Now, this might seem like a big overstatement, but I don't reckon it is. Embracing simplicity is joining the revolution. It's joining the revolution against greed and waste that this system of the world what they offer us. That's what it means to embrace simplicity. Einstein's definition, again, doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Let's together, as God's people say, no, we're not going to be insane anymore. Is this just me or are there other insane people in the room? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Let's be honest, we're all a little bit insane. We're looking for that buzz. We're going back to Amazon, buying more stuff, looking for the thrill of the delivery moment, that little buzz that comes, that little buzz of happiness, only to remember again that it's fleeting. Simplicity is standing against that, joining the revolution against the cultural tide. Hear the voice of Jesus right now. Hear the promise here when he says, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. In 2022, I'm sure it's been true throughout history. It was true then, it's true now. Could Jesus have had said anything more countercultural than this? Everything you look at everywhere is saying, life does consist in abundance of possessions. Jesus says, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Jesus said this in a particular context. So let's look at it, Luke 12. Luke 12, starting at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Here is someone driven by the desire for more. Someone thinking if they had more stuff, if they had more money, they'd be happier and more satisfied. And Jesus just dismisses it. Jesus is almost rude here. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Like, that's pretty dismissive, right? Jesus, who gave so much time to people, just dismisses this concern. And I think it's, it's what he's going to go on to say that shows why he dismisses it. Because then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. There it is. 
a statement for then and a statement of truth for now. This is exposing the lie that the world is saying to us. He goes on, he told him a parable. The ground, it's important to remember, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. It's the word of the Lord. Don't we live in a time of bigger barns? They might not be barns to put grain in them unless you're a farmer and came from Toowoomba. That would have been very apt for many people who would have been listening. But we still have bigger barns, right? Driven by the consumer economy and the values behind it, we want more and more. They may not be barns, but they'll be bank accounts, they'll be share portfolios, they'll be real estate that we own, bigger and bigger stuff so that we can enjoy the good life and early retirement is beckoning. That's the dream, isn't it? I remember I had a friend who retired at 46, living the dream, so he thought. We believe that these are the things of happiness and satisfaction and, and we want to get to that point, that elusive point that this guy talks about. Then I won't have to work anymore. Then I'll be carefree, stress-free, eat, drink, and be merry all the days of my life. That's the point, is it not, of ultimate happiness. Jesus, God says, you fool. And you fool, not like you clown. That If you would translate this, it's like you're stupid. This is an unintelligent way to live. This is not a wise way to live. There's two things going on here. Remember I said the ground, because this is the reality for this man. The ground gave him wealth. And yet his attitude towards the ground is it's mine. I'll have it. It's mine. I'll use it. There's a lot of self-statements. I did this. This is the work of my hands. I'm, I'm clever. I'm smart. Therefore, I will put it all away, and then I will relax, take life, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. There is no... Ascent. There is no awareness of providence with a capital P. There is no worship of a God who made the land and ultimately who gave the man breath, who gave the, who gave the man hands to work. There's no awareness of a sovereign God. There is a complete ignorance and it's all about I, me, myself. And is that not the number one primary strategy of all marketers everywhere to make it all about you? to make it all about me, I, myself. The second thing I see here is that having much is not the problem. Be being rich is not the issue. Being wealthy is not the issue. The issue here that Jesus draws out is, because he says, you know, well, let me go back. What does he say at the end of that parable? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. You hear it's subtle, but Jesus is saying, it's not actually wrong to build up wealth. That, that's not the problem. The problem is there's not a richness towards God. First of all, because this guy pays God no due, no, no, no claim, no praise to say, this is a gift from the hands of God, and so I want to use it to honor him, I want to be rich toward him, but it's all focused on his own enjoyment. There's no heart for the poor. There's no heart for people who are doing it tough. It's all about himself, and it's all about drawing all that wealth into his own barns so that he can enjoy it 
forever. It's not about how much you have. It's actually about how generous you are towards God. There is an absolute poverty in this man's heart towards God and towards others. What does it mean to be rich toward God? I think it means two things, self-giving love toward him and self-giving love towards others. And in a word, it's to be generous. The reality that happens when we consume things is that those things are actually consuming us like they were for this man. The things that we think are going to bring us happiness, we're not in control. That They're in control of us and by trying to bring more and more stuff into ourselves, that they're consuming us. They're actually hurting our hearts, hurting our souls because we become a slave to them. We become a slave to having to have them. It's the cure for that. I listened to Carl Faye speak at Man Camp a few weeks ago. He said the best cure, it's really simple, the best cure for this sort of problem is giving everything away. If you've got a heap of stuff and it's consuming you, that's what Jesus says to the rich young ruler who thinks, I've done, I've done, I've done all the stuff all my life. Jesus said, it just says Jesus loved him. It's the one thing you like, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What's he saying? It's consuming you. It's consuming your heart. It's consuming your soul. Get rid of it. The best cure for consumption, generosity. This is a constant theme through Scripture. There's so many places we could go to understand more about this statement from Jesus, this promise from Jesus that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I'll just let me give you a couple, that there are tons, right? This is like a mega theme of Scripture. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10. These are going to be on the screen. Don't worry about looking them up. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment, being satisfied. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I've got a note about this later on. I might say it again, but let me just say really quickly. And, and, and Paul hints to this in, in this passage that we've just read. There is a line at which wealth does bring happiness. Like if you're in poverty, you're not, you need more. You need more stuff. You need more income. But there is a line. I remember reading in America, this is an American figure, they reckon, the social, the social researchers reckon for a family about 70,000 US dollars a year is what you need to get to in order to bring this little, this little, um, this gap of not having enough actually brings unhappiness that can be dealt with with more money. So Paul writes to Timothy, clothes being well fed. And so for us who have a lot, and I think that's a lot of the people in the room, this is why it's so important for us who have a lot to be generous to the poor, to help people get out of poverty, to help people get to a level where they can be happy. But again, the research goes on to say, once you reach that point, if you keep earning more and more, happiness starts drastically starts to decrease. It decreases thereafter. Here's Paul again in Philippians 4, and this, this is talking about contentment in all circumstances, and this is the life of simplicity. Paul says, I'm not talking about lacking anything. Philippians 4 verse 11. I'm not talking about lacking anything. I've learned to be content with what I have. I know how to do without, and I know how to cope with plenty. 
In every possible situation, I've learned the hidden secret of being full and hungry, of having plenty and going without, and it's this. I have strength for everything in the one who gives me power. He has strength from the one who said, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, but come to me. Walk with me, work with me, and I'll show you the unforced rhythms of grace. I'll show you life that doesn't need possessions to be happy. It's not about how much or how little you have. The the invitation from Jesus into the abundant life is not a life found in the accumulation of possessions. The life, this is the life that knows contentment in any and every circumstance, and it's an invitation into a life of simplicity. I think we're starting to get the picture of what we mean by simplicity, but let's, let's speak directly about it. Sorry to those guys, you know what that box says, I don't need to move this to, for you to see. Here's a few definitions of simplicity in the context that we've established, all right? Three definitions, the first one's from Richard Foster. The inward reality, this is him talking about simplicity, this is the inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness in which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. That's what simplicity is. Here's Joshua Becker. The intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of anything that distracts us from them Here's a good example. Maybe that can go. Maybe just, maybe just, maybe just one subscription is enough. And what, like, I reckon, how many subscriptions have we got? Are you comfortable for me to tell everyone? Is that too much of a? I think we've got four or five. What, what if you just went back to having one, but instead of putting that money somewhere else, take the money that you pay monthly subscriptions and and pray. How God do you want me to use this money to give somewhere else? What if we did that? And you know, the beauty of these subscriptions is you can cancel them after a month and not be up for a big fee. So you can jump around. You can go from Netflix to Stan to Disney Plus to Paramount. It's embarrassing that I know them all. But you're replacing. You're replacing some of these things with things that actually, what Joshua Becker says, the intentional promotion of things we most value and the removal of anything that distracts us from them. Here's one from John Mark Comer. These guys have all written books, by the way, that are really helpful if you're a reader. Uh, Richard Foster has um, a book on, on spiritual formation, spiritual discipline. Dallas Willard, who I quoted earlier, The Spirit of the Disciplines. John Mark Comer has a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He writes this about simplicity, and he speaks about this as well. Limiting the number of our possessions, expenses, activities, and social obligations to a level where we are free to live joyfully in the kingdom with Jesus. Who is just taking a big breath at reading that statement going, oh, please, Lord, let that be me. There is hope. There is hope for an uncluttered life that, where that statement becomes true of us. Simplicity, if we go back here, is about the intentional and serious review of all that clutters or sits neatly on our table and saying, Jesus, what can go and what can I add? I want to read a big chunk of scripture to you. And I'd love if it's the right thing for you to do to, to meditate and concentrate. Maybe I invite you to close your eyes as I read this to you because I reckon Jesus has a bit of a manifesto on the simple life in Matthew 6. This is his, well, this is his manifesto on life, the Sermon on the Mount. But I reckon he's, if he was talking specifically about simplicity, he might say something like this. Let me read the words of Jesus. 
Don't store up treasure on earth. Moths and rust will eat it away and robbers will break in and steal it. No, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Moths and rust don't eat it away there and no robbers break in and steal it. Show me your treasure and I'll show you where your heart is. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is honest and clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil, your whole body is in the dark. So if the light within you turns out to be darkness, darkness doesn't come any darker than that. Nobody can serve two masters. Otherwise, they will either hate the first and love the second or be devoted to the first and despise the second. You can't serve both God and wealth. So let me tell you, don't worry about your life, what to eat, what to drink. Don't worry about your body, what to wear. There's more to life than food. There's more to the body than a suit of clothes. Have a good look at the birds in the sky. They don't plant seeds. They don't bring in the harvest. They don't store things in barns. And your Father in heaven feeds them. Think how different you are from them. Can any of you add 15 inches to your height just by worrying about it? And why worry about what to wear? Take a tip from the lilies in the countryside. They don't work, they don't weave, but let me tell you, not even Solomon in all his finery was dressed as well as one of these. So if God gives that sort of clothing even to the grass in the field which is here today and on the bonfire tomorrow, isn't he far more likely to clothe you too, you little faith lot? So don't worry, don't worry away with your what do we eat and what do we drink and what do we wear? Those are the kinds of things the Gentiles fuss about and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Instead, make your top priority God's kingdom and his way of life and all these things will be given to you as well. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow can worry about itself. One day's trouble at a time is quite enough. I reckon the lie of consumerism generally leads to this sort of pattern. We pursue wealth because we think that wealth will make us happy, but to pursue wealth, we then become really busy trying to get the wealth that we want to make us happy, unless you've inherited a whole lot of wealth from wealthy parents. Um, the, the pursuit of wealth makes us really busy. And who, when people ask you how you are, come on, admit it. You love to say, oh, so busy, so busy, because the next thing is status. The pursuit of wealth makes us busy so that when people ask us how we're going, we can say, I'm really busy. So they think, man, they, that person must be really important. They're so busy all the time. Like I, when people ask, when people talk to me, they say, oh, you must be so busy. Even if I'm not, I don't correct them. <laughs> I probably need to start doing that. Because I, busyness means, well, I'm important. And you, know, you don't get into pastoral ministry for the wealth, <laughs> although it is, it is good pay. It's good enough pay. But there's a lot of status, right? Like, look, look right now, I'm up here talking and you're all listening to me. That's, that feels good. There's status in that. You've got to be careful. But this is, this is the consumer. This is, what, this is the pattern that develops in our life when we fall for consumers. Wealth, busyness, status. I reckon when Jesus talks about what he just talked about, what we just heard, there's, there's an, an intentional breaking of this pattern. We need to move from wealth to investing in the kingdom where moth and rust don't destroy that treasure. You know, I think the tithing conversation often isn't helpful because we've got this 10% idea, well, if I give 10% of God, 90% is mine. So like the man in the barns, 
The, fi- the fix for him wasn't going, oh, well, I'll just give a tenth of what's in my barns. I'll give a tenth to, to the church, to the, to the temple, and then 90% left over for me to, oh, that's still plenty. I'll sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. That's where the tithing conversation can be unhelpful because we tend to think 10% is God's, 90% is mine. No, 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 that's not the deal. Jesus wants it all. Jesus wants the whole table. Jesus wants the whole song, the whole rhythm of your life. He wants it all. He wants 100%. 10% given to the communal effort of the church, sure, but all of it, all of your resources for the purpose of his king, all of your resources, not invested in your own wealth, but invested in the kingdom of God, where wrath, wrath and must, those two things as well as moths and rust, destroy. It's pretty musty up there. Down there, I mean, not up there. Going after simplicity means using all of our wealth to invest in that which moth and rust cannot destroy. And this is the kingdom. Well, what is that stuff? Well, I, think, I think it's things like caring for the poor, using your wealth to alleviate poverty. It's things like becoming, I love this phrase, I heard it this week, gospel patrons, supporting work where the gospel is being proclaimed, particularly among new people groups, but also in our city of the Redlands. Become gospel patrons. Give towards that. Not just give money, give time, give prayer. Um, get on board with that. Become a, become a patron. Seeing the growth and expansion of the church. Efforts to, like we talk about, opening new doors. $1.7 million was given this year to open new doors, not because buildings are anything super special, but they do create a context where people can hear the message of the gospel and their lives can be transformed. They can be invited into this life with Jesus. And I'm not, the, the growth and expansion of the church, I, I need to be careful, not primarily the institution, but the growth of the people, because the church is the people, right? You're not, you're not at church, you are the church. So we move from wealth to investing in the kingdom. We move from busyness to intentionally creating margin. From busyness to intentionally creating margin. In verse 24 of what I just read, Jesus says, nobody can serve two masters. Otherwise, they will either hate the first and love the second or be devoted to the first and despise the second. You can't serve both God and wealth. When you serve wealth, you have no margin. You have no margin. It's all about busyness and working and work, 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 work. And you will sacrifice many gifts on the altar of busyness. But the simple life is moving from busyness to creating margin and margin to give time to people who are important in your life, time to family, time to your husband or wife, time to your parents, time ultimately and over all of that to God. Creating margin means learning to use that wonderful word, no. And then moving from status to serving others, from status to serving others. Again, Jesus says, instead, make your top priority God's kingdom and his way of life, and all these things will be given to you as well. What are God's priorities? What's the priority of the kingdom? To love him and to love others, to become a servant of others. Remember that about the queen. Remember that more about our king, that we're not about status. If Jesus was about status, he would not have taken up the towel and got down and washed the feet of his disciples. He would not have done that if he was concerned about status. And often our pursuit of wealth, our pursuit of busyness, making ourselves really busy, is because inside of us we want status. We want to be seen as important. We want all of the stuff we have to show people we are important. We've done well with our life. Look at my car. Look at my clothes. Look at my boots. Look at my, look at my, look at my everything and see that I've done well, all of you people. That's not the heart of Jesus. And, and again, another mega theme in Scripture, think of others as more important than yourself. 
We need to move from status to serving others. The, the simple life is a life of generosity. It's giving rather than getting. It's a life of margin, of time and attention to those who we are in key relationships with. And it's a heart, a humble heart of serving God and serving others. A bunch of practical ideas. Um, I'm aware that time's going on and I'm going to get slammed by my team in our review meeting on Tuesday for going long. But anyway, <laughs> to care, I don't care about status. Um, this, this website, Practicing the Way, if, if you want to take a photo of that, you want some real practical ideas of how to start embracing simplicity, there's a few little guided uh, things that you can, you can find on that page. Um, if you scroll through uh, to uh, practices or, or uh, implementation ideas, you, you'll know what, there's a little tab that you can see there. Um, this, is, this is done by John Mark Comer, who I quoted earlier. Some really helpful ways just to take 15 minutes out of your day and consider, okay, what's on here that could go so that I can replace it with something else, embracing this simple life. As I said earlier, we had staff retreat this week. And I, I love our church. I love our leaders. It created space for us as a, as a staff team. It's a really large staff team, more than 50 people, just a time, God, what are you saying? What are you saying to us? What are you saying to our church? And here's the one thing that God said in that moment that we had. Do less, be more. Do less, be more. More of God, less of me. And the pathway to this, I'm convinced, is learning the unforced rhythms of grace. And a key spiritual practice is simplicity. Simplicity. Jesus directs us in John 14 to this place that he talked about earlier where moth and rust can't destroy. He doesn't just direct us there, like point to it and say that's the way to go. He, he walks the path and he invites us to follow. In John 14, the first four verses of John 14, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going, to, going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am and you know the place where I am going. The disciples were confused at that point, but we are not. We know that Jesus, who lived the simple life, that through his death and resurrection, he was going to that place, to his father's house, to the kingdom, where there will be no more crying, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more lack, there'll be plenty. It talks about the streets being paved with gold, gems, like wealth coming out your ears. But that's not for now. That's for then. That's where Jesus was going. The path to get him there was painful. It was sacrificial. It was obedient. It was incredibly loving. It was incredibly courageous, but it was simple. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.